0: Have you ever wanted to strike up a conversation, but didn't know how to get started? We explore how to connect with people through meaningful conversation after the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul To enrich our university our community and the church be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org
0: hello and welcome to upwards i'm your host dan when i think of conversations my first thought is people sitting down in coffee shops with a dozen conversations happening all at the same time each with its own point of focus and unique style However, even in this comfortable setting, we often struggle to understand the person sitting across from us, or to feel understood by them. We exist in a culture where everyone desires conversations and deep relationships, but they're getting harder and harder to find. Our guest today, English professor and author Heather Holloman, offers a winsome entryway into practicing deeper and more meaningful conversations. Conversations that are rooted in seeing all people as created in the image of God. Heather isn't just a theorist of good conversation, she's an expert at them herself. We hope you get a sense of her passion for real connection in this episode about her new book, The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. Heather is an associate teaching professor at Penn State University, and she's the author of numerous books on evangelism, communication, and Christian formation. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with Heather Holloman. So nice to have you uh, on the podcast, Heather. Uh, I thought we could start by just getting a, a little sense of who you are and where you come from. So just asking you uh, some basic you know uh, biography questions. Um, yeah, where uh, where did you come from? Uh, what What brought you <laughs> to um, sort of uh, become a professor uh, at a public university?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. So, I grew up a military daughter, which really informs a lot of my passion for loneliness and belonging. So, I moved every two years. But I did end up spending most of my life in Virginia and went to the University of Virginia and just fell in love with literature. And um, the natural thing was to go into either teaching or to get the PhD in English literature, which I did at Michigan. And I quickly realized that I loved teaching composition more than I loved. Analyzing literature, and that drew me to my current position at Penn State, where I teach advanced writing and for the Honors College and design curriculum. So I'm like your worst nightmare. I love grammar, and I make my students use semicolons and strong verbs pretty much in every paragraph.
0: Well, and that seems like a continuity with the military upbringing, right? Like a a sort of strict, (laughs) strict demand for detail and precision. Exactly. Yes, and I have
2: exceptional handwriting, and I keep a very tidy room. Just like my dad taught me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very good. Um, so you said you moved around a lot. Is there any any place in particular that made a mark on you growing up that you, it sounds like you moved a lot, but w- were there any places that you sort of either thought of as home or, or just were very memorable?
2: Well, first of all, Dan, that is a really good question. Not many people ask me that. So thank you. I actually loved Fort Lewis, Washington. And my dad was <laughs> battalion commander there. And what I loved is every day, Coming out on the playground, you're just sitting under the shadow of Mount Rainier. Our art classes mm. would be go outside, it's a sunny day, go draw Mount Rainier. And I think that shaped this love of the sublime for me, which is why I love 19th century British literature, Wordsworth, Keats. You know, when you, when you are a child, you know, growing up next to this huge mountain, I just, it's like the grandeur of God right there. So I love Fort Lewis. I haven't ever been back, but this year I may go out to the Northwest and see if I can visit. Fort Lewis. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to 'cause you you guys are right in the Midwest. I don't have you ever made your way out to Mount Rainier.
0: I have not. Um, though I do have a connection with romantic era I maybe less literature and more uh painting. So I love the Hudson School, which is oh, a yes. certain, yes. you know, school of American artists and particularly Albert Bierstadt, who um was a German immigrant to the US, did a lot of those sort of romantic era paintings. I actually have one in my living room. Uh, oh, I that's love depicting that. Depicting Yellowstone. This is- so
2: I love this conversation already. I love talking about romanticism and because I teach composition. I'm not teaching, you know, my favorite British poets anymore in the romantic movement, but I do right now I'm in a narrative unit. So that's kind of talking about creativity and imagination Mm. and the individual, you know, that kind of goes back to my love of romanticism. So that's cool. I want to see that painting.
0: Yeah, it's it, well. You could you, um, you can Google it right after our conversation. I'm sure. I'm sure it's on there somewhere. It's Yellowstone at Sunset, I believe, is the name of the painting. Perfect. Um Show notes. Um, Put it
2: in the show yeah. notes. Okay, <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> the other connection I'll just say is I um, I was a missionary kid, so I also identify with moving around um, a good amount. But we ended up spending a good amount of time in Colorado after being abroad, and. Um, we lived live in Colorado Springs for a while, but that is right at the foot of the Rocky mountains. You so know what I mean? Much yes. of your, yeah, much of your life is just oriented toward like there's mountains on my, you know, on one side of me. Um, and you can sort of orient yourself. That's the West, right? Is, mm-hmm. is where the mountains are. So, um, it's, it's something I definitely miss here in, uh, in the Midwest where <laughs> many, many fewer mountains, a lot of hills, but not a lot of, uh, a lot of mountains. Um, Okay. Well, let's, uh, one, one, one more thing I wanted to ask Heather about, um, your background is just, uh, you know, some, something about your spiritual history. You talk about being a Christian in the book that we're going to talk about, uh, the six conversations. Um, and I know it's something that you weave into, um, your books a lot is your, um, your commitment to Christian faith. Can you just talk about, uh, where that came from and, and sort of, um, uh, how that weaved into your upbringing.
2: Well, I am someone who loved the Bible from a very young age. And when I was 12 years old, I just read the Psalms. And it was my first real connection where I felt sort of connected to something larger. It was like this moment where the Holy Spirit was animating. It was Psalm 30, you know, tears may flow in the night, but joy comes through the Lord in the morning. And as a 12-year-old, I was having so many... Problems in my life. You know, there were just so many bad things happening to me. And I thought, okay, I can't control anything in my life and I need help. And that day I really cried out to the Lord and I thought that, first of all, God's word is powerful. I felt like I was speaking to me through the words as a 12 year old. And that really, that day really shaped my passion for devotionally reading God's word every day and believing that the Holy Spirit speaks through God's word and connecting with God deeply through scripture. And so that moment was so powerful, so overwhelming that it did shape me forever. Now, of course, I didn't have good discipleships and I wasn't involved in any kind of, you know, growth. And so discipleship wasn't happening. And it wasn't really until I was a grad student at University of Michigan getting involved with crew that I really began to grow. I did have some people involved in my life at University of Virginia, but I was sort of living my own independent way and not surrendered to the Lord at all. But once I under, you know, understood that I needed Jesus to kind of control my life, I had these moments of surrender at University of Virginia that kind of continued to Michigan. But so that it really began when I was twelve years old, just reading the Psalms.
0: Great. Well, um, it, that actually is a good um, jumping off point to talking about uh, conversations or communication, because um, as I recall from from your book, you talked a bit about. Uh, your childhood, and uh, it, I don't want to mischaracterize, it, but that you you talked a lot is that is that how you frame it in the book? That uh, you're someone who liked to talk uh, all the oh time. Oh my gosh,
2: Dan! I was an incessant talker. I was the most <laughs> annoying child. I had high articulation needs. I was also a gifted child. Like I was really precocious. I was always I was a national debater. I was winning oratory contests, arguing with everybody. So I talked <laughs> all the time and was profoundly alone. And that's a big part of why, again, I was so drawn to the research about how to actually have loving connections with people. So, yes, I was a talker. I don't know if I have children. One is a talker, but nothing like I used to be. The number one thing I heard in my home was, Heather, would you please stop talking? Number one expression, (laughs) 100%, stop talking.
0: (laughs) I I cannot identify. I was, I, I don't. I don't think I was a big talker, but I do have uh, twin two-year-old boys um, who talk incessantly. Um, I hope they continue. Actually, it's a it's a fun thing, but uh, um, I I uh, I can't identify personally, but I can uh, imagine uh, kids who are who are of that type. I wanted to ask, just like what what brought you to want to write a book now about conversations and communication? You start with that story of. Uh, or one of the stories is of, of your childhood. But uh, of course, you've written many books before this one, and you're writing this book you know, here in 2022, 2023. What made you want to write about conversations in this moment?
2: Well, two reasons. The first is my husband and I had written an award-winning book on evangelism called Scent, Living a Life That Invites Others to Jesus. And when we would do our evangelism training, Dan, people would say, we want to talk about Jesus. We have no problem. We're trained. But can you please go back and teach us how to start a conversation in general? We don't know what questions to ask, where to go next. You know, what are the on-ramps where you can transition to a gospel conversation? So we really needed to train our grad students and faculty and undergrads who really wanted to share their faith. So my primary gift is evangelism, and I love talking about the Lord. So immediately I was like, okay, I need to write something that helps people have warm and loving connections. The second reason I wrote it is the Harvard Grant study. I don't know. Have you read that, Dan? It's the longest research study it ever conducted. I think in it's it's in its eighty third year it it is it's a research yeah, I've, study. I've heard about it. I have it, not
0: read it it's, well, um, yeah, I, it's like John F Kennedy is in it right and, yeah and John F Kennedy's sort of in it
2: people. and yeah. um I was showing it to my students because the study is trying to answer the question, what's the single most determining factor of a happy life? And mm. the results are indisputably warm connections. Having warm connections with people is the number one determining factor of a healthy life of a happy life and it's not just emotional happiness. They're talking about the effects of chronic loneliness on the body and how it breaks your health down and I was sharing this research with my students and one of them I said, you know, does that surprise you that the number one determining factor of a happy life is warm connections and the student said, "Well, how do we get those?" And it just broke my heart looking, you know, I I do have students come to my office hours and they say things like, I'm going on a date with this girl, but the problem is I've only texted her. We've never spoken in person. What do I do? And I was, I told the student, Alex, I said, okay, well, when you pick her up tonight, you can say, you know, I just gave him the first question, like, did anything surprise you about your day? Sort of like, how was your day? And he literally started taking notes. And then he said, okay, then what? (laughs) Okay, then what? Hmm. I was like, well, If when she answers, you know, I was sort of like training him in the art of conversation. So those are the two reasons the Harvard grant study, you know, my, my passion for helping people talk about things they care about in their faith. And then, you know, as I started to write the book, um, you know, other reasons kind of flooded my mind just about how to help students even build rapport professionally. So I do a lot of interview Mm -hmm. coaching and people that are on the job market. And if you can build connection with someone, you're going to get the job. You're going to know how to negotiate your salary. You're going to work really well on a team. So there's professional reasons, spiritual reasons, and psychological reasons that really motivated me to write this book.
0: What about the uh, subtitle? So the subtitle is Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. So I want to take each of those uh, separately, but... um, Isolation. What what, what do you, what do you mean by that term, and and uh, what are you identifying there?
2: Well, what I mean by that term, and again, this I started thinking about this before COVID. Before COVID, mm. l- literally isolated us in our homes. I had read Harvard declaring an epidemic of loneliness on the college campuses. I was seeing the news that, like you know, the UK and Japan and Switzerland were appointing ministers of loneliness because of this kind of what they're calling the epidemic of loneliness. And I just was noticing the trends of isolation in my own community. And as I was researching about loneliness, I got an email from my home state of Pennsylvania, and it's tracing diseases of despair. So like suicide, drug addiction, they're tracing those things to a lack of social support as one of the one, the, uh, one of four key factors that really harm people. And, you know, no one was hanging out in my neighborhood. Nobody was getting together. We aren't doing that anymore. So it is a culture of isolation. We're on our phones a lot. We connect on social media, but there's not a lot of deep and meaningful community connection. So I see the isolation everywhere. Students talk about being lonely. I've felt lonely and continue to feel lonely when I don't forge those warm connections. So that's when it started, really, what the, when Harvard sent out in, in an email, you know, we're in an epidemic of loneliness, which I think was actually 2019, because hmm. I I think it was 2018 the Cigna Health Study came out of 20,000 U.S. adults, and that research showed that over half the population says they're lonely and don't have meaningful in-person interactions. So, Do you
0: see the isolation, the uh, epidemic of isolation? I, obviously, you referenced this Harvard... Um, Uh, declaration. So that's coming from a college, but do you see it particularly hitting uh, college age students uh, harder or, 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 yeah, harder than the rest of society?
2: Well, yes, I do. And that, I mean, and it was in the worst part of it was I was seeing this before COVID. And so Mm -hmm. when Penn state shut down and now students are alone in their bedroom or in their dorm room connecting only on zoom, I mean, it was just devastating to, 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 Know that they were already feeling isolated beforehand. I think what's wrong on the college campus, and I know this makes me sound like an old person, you know, what what old people say. I do think this over reliance on declarative statements on social media is the illusion of intimacy with other people, but it's not forming the warm connection needed for mental health. So, you know, I can make TikToks all day long but that's just me declaring things to the air. Mm-hmm. And I, you know what I mean? Do you see that, yeah. Dan? Like people are on their phones as it's kind of an illusion of intimacy. What do you think?
0: Oh, I, I think that's right. Um, I think, I mean, I I read some of the same stuff you do about um, uh, even trying to identify like what's changed in the last, you know, 10 years or something to make this a, a sort of more acute crisis for college age people. And I think there's something to, you know, the answer that it's something about smartphones. It's something about, um, uh, the way that we can mediate a lot of our life through these, um, through these devices that don't actually supply the things that were built to need maybe biologically, but certainly spiritually as well of this sort of in-person communication. So I see people who have been sort of grown up in a, you know, young people now, um, I'm not that old, but I'm I'm old enough to remember pre-cell phone uh, pre-cell phone days as a kid. Um, people who have been entirely socialized into that—it's just a much different, I think, uh, pressure cooker. Um, where that's really—it's hard to think outside that box. It's hard to think about what it's, what it'd be like to have sort of a social life that isn't sort of deeply mediated by devices and particularly smartphones. So yeah, I I, I guess I agree with with a lot of the experts, you included, who. Um, who who say something's different in the last, particularly, you know, since the early 2010s um, on this well, stuff? Well,
2: one of my students said it's because, like, he doesn't like talking in person because he doesn't have the time to craft this really clever response like you can when you're texting. Like, w- talking one-on-one without <laughs> right. having the ability to pause and get all your friends to help you craft the right response to the guy or the girl. It's really funny. He goes, yeah, I don't like being in person because I don't have the time to make myself sound as cool as I want, I was like, okay. So yeah. basically, it's this, you know, totally crafted identity. But we were laughing about that. But they do. It is a skill they recognize they need to learn. They're, I mean, my students this semester they are so hungry for these skills. They're like, okay, teach me again. What do I say next? What's a great question to ask people? How do I form these warm connections? And so they're ready. I think people are tired of being lonely. They're tired of not having warm connections, and so the isolation piece is definitely you know that's definitely hitting a cultural problem so for sure
0: yeah i i totally agree well the other the other side of the coin i guess for uh, for your book is incivility so uh you know same question what what did you mean by incivility and and what are you talking about there
2: well this really comes out of a shift that happened in 2000 i think 2019 2020 but a little bit more before but in particular those years uh, being in the college classroom and even before COVID, I realized that we weren't treating people with unconditional positive regard. When you were talking to someone, you were vetting them. And I and my students laughed. I said, when you meet someone, the first thought that comes to your mind isn't, oh, I'm excited to talk to this person. I wonder if I'll learn from them. Your first thought is, who did they vote for? What do they believe about vaccines? You know, even recently, like mm-hmm. what was your position on Roe v. Wade? Like, Are you, you know, just we're vetting everything like political positions, social positions. And I literally would see my classroom torn apart and students telling me they were afraid to speak because of cancel culture. They were really afraid to ask a question because they were afraid it would reveal that they had an incorrect political or social position. And in a college classroom, in an educator situation, you don't want to ever be in a shame-based pedagogy situation. Mm -hmm. You don't ever want people to be afraid to ask a question and learn. But what I was seeing is just silence, people not wanting to talk, and people being afraid of each other because of different political positions. And, you know, during an election year, when you're on a college campus, you see that. It, It is a place of activism and protest. So I have really taught my students to think about this idea of unconditional positive regard, meaning you can learn from anyone and it's actually good to have friends that believe things completely differently for, it's really good to have people in your Mm. life that don't believe what you believe. So I'm loving seeing that it's great for them professionally and it's great to see their social lives just grow as they learn this idea of unconditional positive regard. Believing the best about people essentially.
0: Right. Right. Um, Good, uh, good, good advice for uh, intimate relationships like marriage as well. Um, marriage, always, yes. <laughs> always assume the best in the other. That, that, that's my one, like if I had to just give one piece of advice, um, about I marriage, assume the best of the other person. I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, thinking of, just thinking about, um, a question I asked on isolation, maybe for incivility, is there particular types of incivility or pressures of instability on a college campus and I I think of you you were talking about students I also think I talked to um more than uh more than a handful of faculty at a place like UW who feel sort of a similar like tension anxiety that they did not feel years before about what they say in a classroom and how how that will be interpreted well it's you get a sense of yeah go Go ahead. ahead
2: Well, yes, and and you have to be careful as you talk about these things because I'm someone who really does believe in public accountability and public mm. protest. Like cancel culture isn't all bad. You you want to hold mm. people accountable. But what I really learned was interpersonally, like when you want to have a warm connection, you need to move out of this idea of public protest and activism and think about the warm connection, because that's how you actually change people's minds. If you're interested in aligning people to your political position, protest is amazing for systemic change. You that that's Think about how our nation was formed or the mm-hmm. civil rights movement. So, you know, my sociology professor friends, they're like, yeah, we need these kind of what people would say, you know, we're in a culture of incivility because everything's a pu- public protest. But they all agree that something needs to change interpersonally, that every conversation can't be a, an argument where everyone ends up angry, canceled, afraid. So, yeah, that, I think that does cause a lot of isolation. Even amongst the faculty at Penn State, you're careful about what you say. You're careful about how you ask questions. And it's, it really divides people.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that sets up some of the sort of uh, groundwork uh, for uh, suggesting what actually does a good conversation look like. So I'm just going to ask that in the most general sense is what makes for a good conversation? And I'll let you sort of answer that however you think is the best way to start.
2: Okay, Dan, what I love is I love research. I love reading all the social science research available to me. I love talking to professors about their research labs. And so I started to just read and read and read and read. And what I discovered was that four things need to happen in any conversation in order to have a warm connection. And if one of them is missing, you won't have that connection. So what the research was showing me was that when you're with someone, if you believe the best, if you're curious, if you express concern about their lives, and if you share your life, you can form a warm and loving connection. And the technical research terms are interpersonal curiosity, unconditional positive regard, investment and mutual sharing. And the thing that delighted me, because anytime I read research, I always ask, like, did the Bible already teach this us this? And sure enough, I was mm-hmm. like, where have I heard this before? And I'm sure you're laughing, Dan, because this is Philippians 2. Value others above yourself. Take on the interest of other people. Take on the nature of a servant. Mm-hmm. Think of Galatians 6, we're bearing each other's burdens, or Romans 12, which really challenges people because it says to bless those who persecute you. Honor mm-hmm. one another above yourselves, even your enemies, the people you don't like. So I love that research. I love that scripture confirms it. And um, what the book really does is try to help you work out how to do that in every conversation.
0: Yeah, and I, uh, the, you offer a, a bunch of different sort of frameworks or you know lists of of uh, three or uh, three goals of a conversation, ten pitfalls of a conversation. Yes, yes. Um, I, I guess one uh, uh, hesitation by a certain type of reader would be this sounds a little formulaic or it sounds a little like uh sort of equation that i need to um uh fill out uh to sort of succeed in a conversation i guess uh something like that um how how do you think about this so you know there's these four things you just mentioned the four you know parts of a good conversation as you're going into a conversation how are you orienting yourself are you sort of like is there like a a list in your head that you're thinking about is it uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's more organic than that. But just how do you how do you think about um, these these like crucial components that make for a good conversation and how to how to embody them?
2: Well, the first thing I do and recommend to any person is to figure out where you're weakest, because that's what you should lead with. For example, I talked to a professor and he was like, yeah, I'm lonely. I don't know what my problem is. And I told him the four mindsets and he goes, oh, I know what my problem is. I said, what's that? Mm-hmm. He goes, well, I just don't care about other people. I'm not curious about them no. and I don't want to know about their lives. I was like, all right, mm-hmm. curiosity is is our number one goal this week, you know, learning that. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm weakest in sharing my life so I can be really curious and ask a ton of questions and be concerned about you. But guess what, guess what that's called? That's an interview. That's not me sharing my life with you. So I'm weakest in sharing my life and I was weak in unconditional positive regard because I would be suspicious and judgmental of people And when I learned to lead out with where I felt weakest and where I wanted to grow, I found that I sort of had more friends that I knew what to do with. I found that my daughters wanted to spend time with me. My husband wanted to engage me in conversation. He would seek me out because I was believing the best about him. I was sharing my life in warm ways. So I do think it is organic when you just um, keep a mindset in front of you like, okay, how do I need to grow? And how can I sort of live out Philippians to honor people, take on their interest? So it does seem formulaic, but as like a grammar expert, once you learn the rules, then you're free to create a masterpiece. So having rules Hmm. and a formula and even a template is never bad. It's like learning the keys on a piano, like get those down, get the notes down, and then you're going to find that you know how to do this for the rest of your life.
0: That's great. Uh, That's a very, uh, very good way to think about it. One of the other parts of the book that I found really um, interesting and surprising, maybe, where you talked about the goals of a conversation. Oh, yes. And um, uh, you had three in particular that you highlight. But yeah, just talk to us about how to think about the goals of conversing.
2: Oh, my gosh. Dan, this is a game changer because... Have you ever asked yourself, like, what is a conversation for? Like, what is the point of me talking to this person? So I began to research the people who study this kind of stuff. Like, there's the Yale Relationship Lab. There's, you know, people that actually are devoting their lives to this idea of warm connections, connecting through meaningful conversation. And what I began to realize was there are three things that you can do when you think about how do I want to end this conversation? The first is encouragement. You know, just wrapping it up and encouraging that person, saying something to strengthen their heart, to give them hope, to give them a little bit of joy. The second thing is helping them in their personal goals. And if if you have listeners that love James Clear Atomic Habits, he even says that, like, if you can connect with someone over your shared goal, you're going to feel that warm connection. So often in the English department, and this is a great professional skill. I'll say to people, okay, what projects are you working on? And by the end, I'm like, okay, how can I help you? How can you help me? Let's get this going. And we're just so close. The third one is so hard, but the research is astonishing. It's this idea of marveling. So a research report I read said that if you take lonely and depressed people, and the, and the sample size was a group of elderly people that were presenting as lonely and depressed. If you send them out with someone on what's called an awe walk with the goal of marveling about something in nature, their rates of depression and loneliness decrease significantly. So when you're with, and it goes back to Mount Rainier or like the Rockies, if I were with you, Dan, and say we didn't have a warm connection, but we're both gazing together at the Rockies, and you say to me, isn't this amazing? How did how did these mountains even form? Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Suddenly we're in the realm of the sublime and we're going to have this marvelous <laughs> connection where it's just going to be beautiful. And we take our eyes off ourselves. So if you can get someone to marvel with you, it's going to be wonderful. So try to, it's really hard though. When I, when I do training workshops on this, people are like, I've never done this before in my life. Like, what do I do first? I was like, look for divine activity. Someone tells you something you could say, wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds like God answered a prayer or God sent this person. So look for divine activity. Look for something beautiful in nature before you know it you're not going to be nearly as lonely or depressed as you were before if you try this kind of Marvel idea. I know, isn't That's that fast. cool? Dan, have I just That's like inspired cool. you? Yeah,
0: so go Marvel. Go
2: Marvel with <laughs> you your have twins. Yeah,
0: that, Well, uh, we'll try. Um, yeah,
2: <laughs> twins are harder. hard. My husband's uh, a twin, so Yeah. Uh,
0: Uh, maybe it's more the age than the uh, they marvel at um, uh, actually you know I'll reverse that they marvel at things that I find really mundane which leads to me sort of rethinking how cool some you know basic uh appliances or something like that where where they're they they there's have that just the eyes of the child, you know, that her Yeah, they naturally marvel.
2: Kids naturally marvel. And I love that's
0: actually really good advice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love talking to (laughs) children. I have such a passion for connecting deeply with children. And when I applied the principles to my two little girl neighbors, they're like, you know, little second grade, no, kindergarten and I forget, like fourth grade you know, trying to think, okay, where can this conversation go? And, you know, we're sitting on the grass. And I'm like, guys, don't you think this is so cool about, you know, this ant or whatever? And before you know it, we're just like overwhelmed with like insects and nature and grass. And why do people have lawns anyway? Where did that come from? You know, it's just amazing. So yeah, awe, marvel. The easiest one is just encouragement and, you know, sharing Projects that you're working on. And you know, when I talk about this stuff, a lot of people are like, wow, my conversations, I'm either gossiping, complaining, or causing division. And so it's deeply convicting and it is discipleship material to say to someone, what's happening in your conversations? I was very mm. immature in my faith. I didn't do any of these things. That's why I wrote about mm. the 10 fit pitfalls, because that was who I was gossiper, complainer, divisive. I don't know about you. Were you ever like mm. that? Did you ever have conversations where you just were like, you know, arrogant or I don't know, because you've been with grad, you were in grad school. Conversations are notoriously <laughs> self-focused. You know, you're just performing, you're, I don't know, posturing. So I was like that. I was that nightmare grad student who just talked about herself and complained about everyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you, um, uh, for the listeners, there's a, a list of uh, pitfalls to conversation that Heather goes through and. Um, yeah, they're pretty convicting. I think self-absorption would be the one as a grad student. You're so socialized into presenting yourself in a certain way that's very much like, you know, and and having a, a spouse or a, a close friend who's not an academic really uh highlights this cuz they they realize how weird it sounds when when you sort of get socialized <laughs> yeah. in these worlds but the idea that you know mm-hmm. you, you sort of introduce yourself and the first thing you sort of lead with after your name is what you study or something and it it's sort of this yeah. trying to sort of impress the other person or situate yourself in 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 some type of uh la- you know sort of academic landscape and um so many conversations are pretty you know pretty lame pretty uh, uh, unhealthy um Uh, uninspiring because of uh that socialization that happens i mean there's also really good things in in grad school that um you're socialized into but i i did realize in sort of coming out of that world that oh yeah that's not how people tend to introduce themselves like not everyone's running directly to their sort of professional credentials or their professional uh project or whatever um, or using words
2: nobody understands
0: (laughs) right and sort of that's sort of the point nobody understands Yeah. yeah yeah that's right um well great yeah um I wanted to to just raise the the title again the six conversations if you could just talk a bit about what what are you referencing in the six conversations our last number probably uh, for this conversation but yeah the six well, conversations
2: Yes I mean at the time I was you know my husband was fascinated by a a, ha- a textbook I was using at the time called Just Being Human and we were talking about this problem of people not knowing how to have conversations. And he stepped into where I was journaling one day and he said, Heather, what if it's as easy as helping people think of the six categories of what it means to be human and always being able to start a conversation in those categories and continue conversations in those categories. And he said, he's an organic organic chemist and this is how his mind works. He was like, essentially you would have endless permutations of possibility Mm -hmm. And you would know exactly what a person would want to talk about. That's why I got Gary Chapman to write the foreword because it felt like a love language to figure out what category a person wants to talk in. So the categories are social. Every person has friends. Young people love it when you say, hey, who have you been spending time with? Emotional. We tend to rely on that. But you can always ask people, hey, I saw you at the game last night. How did you feel about this or whatever? We're cognitive. no, we're physical. That's the next one. So I go to like social, emotional, physical. Everyone has bodies, and we forget to ask about bodies and physical spaces. When I can't connect with someone, I'll often ask about their house projects or if they have a plan for their garden. forty five minutes later, I'm invited out to dinner with their wives, you know, and my husband because they have a warm connection. Um, ask how people are sleeping. Ask if anything in their body hurts. you're You're going to be amazed at the conversation you have. Cognitive. That's my favorite category. You can say, what have you been thinking about? I don't ask people anymore, how are you? I say, I haven't seen you in a while. What have you been thinking about? Volitional is the category about human agency and choices. That's easy. How did you decide this or what's your upcoming decision? And then spiritual, which is the best in terms of transitioning to gospel conversations. People love to talk about their faith, whatever faith it is. They love to talk about spiritual things, supernatural things. So there's no mnemonic device. There's no easy way to keep them, you know, to memorize them. But if, as you look at your friends, as you look at your family members or colleagues, just think they're social, emotional, physical, cognitive, volitional, and spiritual. So you start in that category, and then you have six options for the next question based on however they answer. So if, when I was connecting with this very introverted engineer And the stakes were high because I was in a salary negotiation and I just felt no connection to this guy. And I was going down every list of questions. And all I said was, we were on a Zoom call and I said, hey, I saw that you have a lot of property behind you. Are you a gardener? Literally 20 minutes later, I learned all about his garden, but I was like, okay, where am I going to go next? What's my next question? So I, I did volitional. How did you decide to plant heirloom plum trees? And literally, Dan, before I knew it, this introverted professor was like, when can you and your husband come out and see my plum trees? (laughs) So you'll never get lost again, even in the hardest conversations. And I give examples of, you know, grieving people, angry people, gossiping. You know, you, you will know how to guide a conversation and have mutual satisfaction in it as you're moving through these kind of six categories.
0: Fascinating. And we'll get to uh, that that sort of six dimensions to to being a human, I guess. Um, also connect to how we think about people here at Upper House as well. I did yes. want to just linger on the physical because yes. you mentioned that in the book. You just mentioned it now that that tends to be one that is often overlooked. I just wanted, wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Why do you think that is? And um, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that.
2: Well, it could be because it's taboo. And, you know, I have read etiquette guides from the 1870s, especially in Southern culture, also in New England, that it's inappropriate to ask about someone's body like or or about, you know, but it's also about physical spaces and, and the senses. So anything related to your physical self. So just remember, people like to eat. They listen to music. Think about all the, what it means to be a physical being. And, you know, you can just find out what people like to talk about. So I always ask my students, you know, what have you been listening to? Um, You know, tell me the story of how you got interested, you know, in this band, whatever. But I'll never forget, I was having a hard time connecting with some students um, one semester. And for the attendance question, I thought, okay, I'm going to go physical. I said, let's go around the room and I want to know how you've been sleeping. Oh, my gosh, Dan, I learned more about melatonin, lavender, (laughs) ASMR. I learned who hasn't been sleeping at all. I learned people who can survive on two hours of sleep. This guy came up to me afterwards. He goes, I just want you to know I have been so lonely and this class makes me so happy and I wanted to thank you and my parents wanted me to thank you as well. I was like, all right, all I did was ask how you were sleeping. And he was like, it just means so much to be able to talk about your lives and especially with older people, people who have mm. pain in their bodies, um, aging women—they are notoriously lonely in their aging bodies because there aren't good conversations about it. And even if you're with a friend who's—and I don't do a lot of research into the—you know—the gender differences of of how men like to talk about their bodies. But it's always good to be like, you know, hey, you know, I whatever are you? Have you been running lately? Have you have you had any pain in your body? I mean, just ask about people's bodies. I like to talk about like my knee pain or surgeries. And what really made me think about that was I had an emergency kidney stone surgery and people would come over and they'd say, how are you feeling? Blah, blah, blah. I was so bored. But this one person came over and she was like, I need all the details. What was the surgery like? What did the anesthesia feel like? You got to tell me about this kidney stone. She's like, all the gore. I want the physical details. I was so happy. I was so delighted because I wanted to talk about it. I don't know. Do you feel... Like, I'm wondering, Dan, like, as I went through those categories, if you have one that you secretly like people to ask you, because just because you're an academic doesn't mean you want people to ask you about what's going on in your head all the time. You may be someone who actually likes to talk about your friends, but nobody asks, like, who's your favorite person to spend time with? Tell me about how you you found that person. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I like the physical category, but people forget. I don't know. Would that bother you if I ask, like, hey, Dan, how are you sleeping? Do you have any pain in your body? Would that make you feel weird?
0: uh probably i mean okay. it, it, yes but that's probably my own hang-ups than anything else um it, you know we, i'm german-american we, we just don't talk about ourselves a lot that's yeah the, yeah it's like I a cultural German part sense. of it yes um but uh no i think the one I, I mean i will play to type i really do like conceptual conversations yes. I, I enjoy learning what others are thinking about and, and sharing um i do think i also like the spiritual in the sense that um uh uh for someone like me I'm a historian who studies religion and I'm also a Christian they they're really close together and I think for a lot of people who um uh maybe on the outside they might think of like intellectual and spiritual life as very separate or as even in opposition to each other but uh I like to think of them as really reinforcing each other and and the the things that are on my heart are things I'm curious about and things I become curious about are also things I want to explore um uh, through my spiritual life. So, uh, I, I like talking and, and, you know, we're in a context here at UW where, um, from the outside, it can seem very secular, very, uh, sort of spiritually vacant for particularly for some Christians who look on the outside, but you know, this you're, a, you're at a, a public university as well. There are thousands of people who have different beliefs and, uh, are animated by different traditions. Some Christians, many not, And it's really interesting to connect with people on that level, even in a public university setting. Oh, I love it. I I mean, I even
2: love what you're saying. I could imagine with my colleagues saying like, you know, you know, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm fascinated by your religious tradition or your spiritual life. And do you find that it connects at all to your research or teaching? That's such a delightful question. And as someone who loves evangelism and loves talking about Jesus, that would naturally, that's such a good, a good way to start talking about how Jesus matters in your own life. So I love that. I'm taking notes, yeah. Dan. I'm taking notes.
0: <laughs> I'll also say it, it's um, it may, maybe this is a little more controversial, but I think it's true. I also like learning from others, particularly non Christians, about how they think about that vocational integration question. It's something we talk about a ton here at Upper House because we're trying to get students at UW to think through what being a Christian, how that impacts being an engineer, being a biologist, yeah, being I love a teacher. That. And, and we, I mean, we have a Christian perspective, so we use biblical framework and, and theology to make the case. But of course, there's plenty of other people who see a similar overlap who aren't Christian. And I just like sort of, um, it, it helps me appreciate more my tradition and how I'm framing it and even how to be more creative in it. When I hear how, you know, a Muslim professor thinks about how uh, her faith informs her scholarship or her teaching. Um, it's 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 a it's a it's a, one you can start talking on that level, but two you might actually learn something um, about your own uh, yeah. perspective.
2: Well, the other reason yeah. why that matters, which is so impressive, I just read the college, the Collegiate Council on Mental Health report came out, and they said the two protective factors against like college dropout and increasing levels of anxiety and depression, the two protective factors are warm social connections and a sense of personal mission and meaning. Like knowing why they're doing what they're doing. So asking people to integrate their spiritual lives with their work and creating this idea of like a meaningful personal mission is one of the best things you can do for a student. Get them connected to each other and connected to a sense of vocational calling. And the research shows that those two things, they're calling them the best protective factors for students that are in despair and have had trauma and they just want to drop out mission and belonging. Don't you love that? Mm. you're already you guys are already doing that. That sounds so great. I yeah. love that.
0: Yeah, and I don't know how it is at, at Penn State at UW there's definitely been a heightened interest in um, sort of uh, student spiritual life. I mean it's nothing yeah. specific to Christianity because of studies like this that show that there's a res- I mean the one of the you know keywords around students right now is like resilience or grit. And that, that yeah. the idea that if you have a spiritual component, a cell, so some some self generated mission to why you're at college, that you're going to be less likely to become isolated, to drop out, all that kind of stuff. So there's even this sort of interesting, just instrumental, I think uh, gaze from the university on, like, well, if this is what the study's showing, then we want to, you know support this um, because we want our students to succeed. So it's an interesting, I I feel like that's a COVID type insight. Um, I'm sure people were making it before, but I think there's a renewed interest in it by university administration because of just the dramatic rise in, you know, some of these uh, mental health issues uh, with students since 2020.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Penn State, I'm on a working group for student um, success and well-being, and we have to read all this research about how are we going to make these students okay? How are we going to create well-being? So Penn State's doing the same thing that you guys are, seem to be concerned about. That's great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, could not have predicted that really a few years ago, but it's it's sort of, um, uh, the you know, the need arises and, and we hope we can be part of the solution here uh, in Madison. Um, Heather, I want to just uh, wrap up with thinking a little more about the six dimensions or the six conversation avenues. And then um, I don't expect you uh, to know our own mission statement here at Upper House, but we talk about uh, thinking, being, and doing as sort of the three uh, dimensions of of what we're calling people to in our community, and that can sort of map onto minds, bodies, and actions. Or yeah. you know, there's there's certain certain thoughts that we think are are uh, uh, or certain ideas that are good to contemplate. Uh, Certain ways of acting, certain practices that are very important to being a faithful Christian, and then certain things you actually sort of do in the world. uh, Ways you try to contribute, wrongs you try to right, all that kind of stuff. That's part of uh, our call as Christians as well. Um, I guess I wanted to just think about, um, uh, you know, one thing we try to talk about here is like those are all integrated and there isn't an easy way um, to separate those and to just focus in on one as you were thinking about your six conversations, um, you know, I know you've talked about like, this gives you six entryways into um, talking to someone, but is there something to be said about like uh, the fullness of the, ho- the whole scope? And maybe that's part of a good conversation. Yeah. Is, is it part of a good conversation touching on all six? Um, or how do you think about sort of the, the holistic nature of those six uh, avenues of conversation?
2: Well, what I think about is we tend to not realize how, much. People aren't just emotional creatures. Like we always say, how are you? How are you doing? I mean, by the way, that's an existential weak verb and it stresses the brain. Do not use weak (laughs) verbs and questions. (laughs) Like instead of saying, how are you? You can say, you know, has anything surprised you about your day or did you feel challenged by anything? So I think that um, realizing just how beautiful and complex people are and that they're these incredible each person has a -a one-of-a-kind viewpoint on the universe and their experiences. It's really amazing going back to the the idea of the sublime, like you're in this Mm. conversation with this person who has, you know, thoughts and experiences, you know, in their body, they have choices they're making, they have stressors and dreams, and and they've got, you know, things they think about in their spiritual life. So it's a way of thinking differently about people and entering into their lives, but it also makes you self-aware of, what you think about in terms of those categories. A lot of people walk around and they're not really self-aware. They don't think about, okay, what, what are my upcoming decisions? How am I going to make those decisions? You know, how have I been thinking about God today or what's the health of my social life? Who are my friends? You know, what it just, it just kind of helps you develop as a full person and realize the full range of how you can connect deeply with people and really listen to how people like to connect. So one of the other things I thought about, though, of the mission of what you all are doing is the last chapter of the book about conversations with God and thinking about God's questions that he asks us in the garden about, you know, where are you? Who told you you were naked? You know, what have you done? I love thinking about the symbol, like not the symbolism, maybe the, the larger implications of what those questions are for each person. Like, you know, where are you? Where are you in relation to God? You know, who told you you were naked is a question that's like, Who are you authorizing in the culture to tell you about your identity? And the last Mm. question is, you know, what have you done? This idea of making peace with the Holy God, figuring out this idea of sin and repentance. I mean, these are powerful things. So I think the book really is about discipleship, relation to self, relation to God, relation to others. So I hope that answers your question. I think that is a really big question that you're asking. And I think I got to it, but I think... What you mean is, does it kind of relate to those three things you're talking about? Yes, it does kind of expand on all of those categories of what you're hoping to do in people's lives.
0: Yeah, and I just think of our particular context here at a college, yours as a, a professor uh, at a university, and how these big questions, um, I mean, you should be asking them your whole life, uh, but there are certain moments or periods of your life where you do have a little more space to do it. And I, there's so many different pressures, um, on college students today, but, um, I think one reason why, uh, different religions focus on college age ministries is because there is, uh, there's both a, 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 level of maturity that's being reached, but also an openness and a willingness to explore that sort of comes and goes, uh, you know, once you're in your late 20s, early 30s, there's other things on your plate That's that true. mean, uh, you know, uh, asking the questions of the garden are are seem like, you know, sort of uh, something you'd love to do, but you could never get to. So I think um, some some type of defense of the old added, you know, the old sort of idea that at college you do get to explore some of these big questions um, makes uh, uh, makes maybe um, it more explains why uh, someone like you is someone to bring this up in a book. And a place like Upper House is a place that's interested in that because we're we're trying to reach those people in particular.
2: It's true. I read in a report about, um, you know, these kind of emerging adults that at no other time in their life do they have such a capacity to change their lives and inhabit different worldviews than when you're between the ages mm-hmm. of 18 and 25. It's like one of the most yeah. important times in your life. So I agree with everything you said, Dan.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, last question. This just came to me uh, as I was thinking about the, the the student age. Who do you hope reads the book? Are you Are you hoping students are the ones that read the book, or or is there another particular audience you have in mind? Well,
2: that's such a good question because, as you know, I have a publisher. We have a marketing team. You want an ideal audience, but what I'm finding is you know i see loneliness in the in senior citizen population they're reading the book they're connecting with their friends you know i originally i wanted it for sort of you know college students and young professionals but i just learned that the high school the the public high school is using um six conversations in their curriculum now because the high school students are chronically lonely. And I told the department chair, I said, well, you know, it's explicitly Christian. (laughs) She's like, that's okay. We need this so badly. We may redact some of those sentences, but we're going to get the meat of it in here in public school. I was like, all right, just know, you know, you're going to see a lot of Jesus in this book. So young people are reading it. Um, But most of the retreats I do and workshops have actually been with people in their 40s. Their marriages are are lonely. Their relationship with their kids are terrible. They don't connect in their communities. So originally, I wanted young professionals, but it's really the whole gamut. I'm seeing, you know, high school all the way up to the retired community. But um, I do want to rehabilitate families, though, how to talk to your kids. There's such good advice about just how to ask good questions of any one young people what they like to talk about. Unconditional positive regard is so important for the younger generation. They want to believe that you believe the best about them and you're not judging them. That's probably going to change someone's relationship with their teenager right now.
0: Very insightful. Um, I think it's music to any author's ears to hear that uh, a school is picking up one's (laughs) book as a curriculum. That's like... That's the that's the money maker right there. I think. Well, <laughs> um, I wish
2: my royalty rates aren't high enough. If you if you know, if you publish books, like you don't really make a lot yes, of money. What yeah. I need is like, yeah, I need to I need to sell more books or or something has to happen. But that's the 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 dream is just being able to impact people and um, hopefully money is a happy accident, as they say. But yeah, that would be nice. Let's hope that for us.
0: Yes. <laughs> Sorry to end on such a crass note. I, w- I just no, as a no, fellow like, author, hey, it's like, oh yeah, th- nice. I'd love for a uh, public school to pick up my book. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you for the book. It's It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, best wishes for the success of the book. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much. This has been a treat.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Baer, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.